thank you guys for coming here on Memorial Day weekend. I know there are a lot of people that are probably right now either rolling out of bed or already at the beach. Hopefully they wore their um, sunblock. We'll know tomorrow if they didn't, right? They come back looking like lobsters. Um, but thank you guys for coming. If you guys have your Bibles, um, open them up to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. And uh, it is a, a special day, and I, I think more and more, um, to a certain extent, I, I guess it's, it's kind of amazing sometimes how things match up. Um, sometimes they're intended, sometimes they're not intended. And the track in which we've been going through, um, through this lesson of Daniel, um, we're in Daniel chapter 5, and, and we're going to look at a pretty familiar story, I think. But I think it's relative to even this holiday, Memorial Day, a day that we um, sit back and we, we remember the, the sacrifice that so many men and women um, did for our country, for us personally. And um, the story we're going to read today um, is uh, about when this miraculous hand comes and, and writes on the wall. And kind of the underlining theme to this story is by this time, by the time we get to this chapter, about 20, 25 years have passed since chapter 4. And if you remember chapter 4, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, who is this great and mighty king, uh, the most powerful man in history, um, he had gone through seven years of insanity. So he was, he was running around like an animal, like a beast. He, he was sleeping um, outside. He was eating the grass. His hair had grown long. His fingernails had grown long. I mean, he was, he was insane, and he was acting exactly like a beast. This is a powerful man. And at the end of those seven years, he, the Bible tells us that he finally turned his eyes to heaven, and he repented, and he got his, his life right with God. And, and, um, and so chapter 4 ends on this, this great high note. Well, when we get to chapter 5, King Nebuchadnezzar has passed away. And this is, like I said, about 20, 25 years after chapter 4. And now we begin to see how his, um, this particular story is about his grandson who's leading. And, and one of the things that we're going to see, that kind of the undercurrent in this theme is this failure to learn from the past. And how King Nebuchadnezzar should have been this example that, that um, the kings who would follow could look to. But Belshazzar refused to. And sometimes I, I think for us in um, the country that we live in, the most amazing country in the world, I wonder sometimes if we have gotten so caught up in the here and the now, we've gotten so caught up with everything around us, we've gotten so caught up with what we'll see a lot of what Belshazzar gets caught up in, that we fail to forget our past. We fail to forget the sacrifice that allows us the luxuries that we have today. And the truth is, when we fail to forget, we stumble and we fall, and we have to relive the same things that history presented. And I, I think for us in the country we live in, although still great and still is being used by God and still will hopefully be used by God, I wonder, as I, as I watch the news, um, how much we've forgotten. And so hopefully today, maybe this will encourage us to remember our past. And for those of us who are parents, to instill 
this history into our children so we can avoid what those who have sacrificed had to endure. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get into Daniel chapter 5. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the things you've done for us. God, I thank you for Memorial Day. Um, and, and Lord, we don't come before you boasting and bragging about how great we are. Rather, Lord, I, I just want to come before you and thank you. Thank you, God, for, for allowing us to, to be this great nation. Lord, thank you for the lives that have sacrificed, some even in death, to give us the ability to even be here this morning, to give us the freedoms to worship. Lord, I pray as, um, as we look into your word, as we look into Daniel chapter 5, God, I pray that you allow this scripture um, to resonate with us. Help us God, to claim this story individually and corporately. God, I pray that as, as we read each verse, that we remember, just like that finger wrote on the wall, that these words are your words. And there's truth in every single letter. And so, God, as we as we dissect this. May it not just be this exercise that allows us to walk away smarter or more religious, but God, may this cause us to draw close to you. Lord, I pray that you allow me to be your mouthpiece this morning. Help me to be faithful to your words. God, give me your heart Give me your passion. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you've done, what you're doing, and what you're about to do. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so Daniel chapter 5. And again, as I said kind of in our introduction, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer there. Uh, he's passed away. Um, and his grandson now, Belshazzar, is the one who's ruling this kingdom. And so we see, starting in verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. And so very beginning of verse 1, we see that there's this big party going on, that, that, that King Belshazzar has gotten a thousand of his, his top people around him. They're in this big banquet hall, and they're having a big old party, okay? Verse 2 says, uh, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem to be brought. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. And then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. If you recall back in Daniel chapter 1 when King Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Judah, had conquered Jerusalem, one of the, the things he did beyond just taking like the cream of the crop, the best of the best, these young men, um, he also went and he pillaged the temple. And he had taken some of the great relics out of the church, the temple. 
And they had stored these, and they had probably been out of sight for, for years. I mean, more than likely since they were brought to Babylon. And Belshazzar begins to have this party. And, and what's interesting, as you read this, um, when he starts talking about the wives and the concubines and, and understanding that there were women present, whenever the women were brought into these parties, it meant that these were going to be um, parties focused around immorality. Typically, in most of these social settings during the Bible days, men and women were separated. And so when the women were present, it was just going to be a party that they were not intending to go good morally. And he starts drinking and, um, and, and starts getting tipsy, and then he, he calls for the servants to go down and get these relics, these vessels, these gold vessels. Now, mind you, understand, remember, and we made a point of this in Daniel chapter 1, that when King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians conquered Israel, conquered the rest of Israel, Judah, and, and the temple, or Jerusalem, it was almost as if this Hebrew God had failed. It was almost as if this God of the Babylonians was mightier, was stronger than this Jewish God. And so now, this pride in Belshazzar begins to bubble to the top to the point where he brings in these relics, these holy vessels from the temple. And he's going to just begin to drink out of them and party. And, and as they're doing this, not only are they just being sacrilegious to, to what these relics were, but they were worshiping these Babylonian gods, these false gods. Verse 5 says, And immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in and they could not read the writing or make known the king's interpretation. And then the king Belshazzar or Belshazzar, was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. And so, in the midst of this party, in the midst of all this chaos and ruckus, as they're all getting wild and crazy, miraculously, this hand appears. And this finger begins to carve on the plaster, on the wall, and it catches the king's attention. And as he sees this hand, the Bible tells us that his countenance begins to change. The color of his skin changes. I love how it even paints this picture that his knees begin to knock. This great king, this powerful king, the one that, that the known world at this time would bow to, in the midst of these thousand people that he's throwing this party to, 
gets so scared that his knees are knocking and his countenance changes. So he summons these wise men. Again, I think we've seen this a few times now in Daniel. Right? Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream. Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar has his second dream. He, he brings in all these counselors, these wise men, and he, he tells them there's this writing on the wall. What does it mean? What's amazing about this is as we get to the end of Daniel chapter 5, it gives us what's written. It's written in Aramaic. It was a known language. But they couldn't understand what it meant. They knew the words, but it didn't make sense. They couldn't apply it. They couldn't figure out what it meant to, to the king or to the kingdom or to anything. They're all perplexed. He offers this great reward. If you mention, if you see there in verse uh, 7, it, talks, it says there, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed, clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck. Uh, he's going to put him in a place of royalty. In, in fact, right there it says that he'll be um, the third ruler in the kingdom. There's a little bit of um, confusion maybe in what this means. Commentators have different stances, but more than likely what's going on is, is um, Belshazzar's father, Nabonius, was actually the head of of the Babylonian Empire, but he was off to war. He was off um, doing what a king should be. He was in charge. He was doing all these other things. He left his son to kind of do the day-to-day operations. And his son was one of these young, spoiled kids. He was too busy partying and living the playboy style. And so what Belshazzar is, is saying there that, that whoever can read, whoever can interpret this, he is third in the kingdom, third in the empire. Like he's below Nabonis, below me is him. Like I'm, we're going to give him everything. Just tell me what this means. Verse 10 says, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your, your color change. There is a man in the kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him the chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because... An excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. This, I think, is kind of interesting. As we look at this, just to clarify a little bit, when it says there, the queen, this is not Belshazzar's wife. This queen would have been his, his, um, his mom. Um, it would have been Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And then later on when she references this idea of Nebuchadnezzar, your father, there's, there's no Aramaic word for grandfather. And so that term father really means grandfather. 
And this is what's amazing. 20 or so years have passed, right? And Belshazzar, or, or Belshazzar, not Bel- Belshazzar remembers Daniel. Belshazzar is completely oblivious to Daniel. Knows nothing about him. Like has to be reminded. Daniel, during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, had proved to be the wisest of the wise men, the, the greatest, the wisest counselor. In this, those few short verses, we, we see this ignorance of Belshazzar. To understand, to, to know that you have this great resource at your fingertips, this, this one that can, can interpret all these dreams, that can help solve all these riddles, that has this great wisdom at his disposal. That, that has proved it in several occasions. Like he is there, he's in your kingdom. He can help guide and direct, he can, he can give influence. Yet Belshazzar has no clue who he is. We don't know exactly what had happened to Daniel in those 20 years from the end of the life of Nebuchadnezzar to this point in history. We, we can speculate by this time in his life, he's in his 80s probably, probably somewhere between 80, 85, closer to 85. Uh, he, he could have been retired. Um, some history tells us that when Nebuchadnezzar had passed and, and a new leadership arose, that they pushed a lot of the leaders that had been under the control of Nebuchadnezzar to the side and gave them menial, menial tasks and replaced them with their own leadership. So we don't know exactly what, what Daniel's been doing. But he's still in the kingdom. We can also speculate in this. That this daughter, the queen, this daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, may have also become a Christian like Nebuchadnezzar did. She wasn't at the party. She wasn't partaking in the same um, actions that her son was doing. She wasn't included with the the thousand people. And she finally catches word that there's something going on. There's a ruckus. There's a crisis in the banquet hall. And she goes down there, sees her her son, knees wobbling, color turned white, and tells him to take a deep breath to relax. And she knows that everybody else has failed in this, and she can recall this man, Daniel. And so she tells her son to go find him. So verse 13, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. Verse 16 says, But I have heard that you can give an interpretation and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with the purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So Daniel comes, and I find it interesting 
that Daniel, as he approaches this king, and the king almost recites everything that his mom says. Hey, he goes, hey, I, I've heard of you, Daniel. I've heard that you, and he re- repeats what she had said in those few verses prior. You, you have almost like the knowledge of these gods. And again, if you notice in there, whenever they talk about these gods there, they're lowercase. It's a lowercase g. He, they're not even referring. He doesn't even think of, of God, the, the, the mighty God, the one and only God. They're still in this mindset of their foreign or their Babylonian gods. And he begins to offer this great thing. He says, Daniel, if you can tell me this stuff, if you can tell me what it means, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you this. I'll make you royalty. I'll, I'll set you in this prominent position. And here we see Daniel's response in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and, and give your rewards to another. And nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So he says, listen, like your reward, it doesn't mean anything. Like I could care less about the status. I could care less about the money. But I'll honor your request. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would, or whom he would, he, hold on, I'm stumbling here, whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so he dealt proudly, he was brought down in his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, Though I knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of this house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are your ways you have not honored. So Daniel says to the king, and he gives the king this little history lesson. You know, the scenario that Daniel walks into is not new to him. It's this idea of a king, a troubled king with a vision that he doesn't understand. This idea of wise men coming in and trying to... um, answer or come up with an interpretation or a meaning or a dream and being perplexed is not new to him. God has continually, this being the third time that he's been put into this situation. And what I love about Daniel, the same thing he did as a, as a young man, 
Remember Daniel chapter 1, that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile God. He made a choice then as a, as a 12-year-old that he would stay close to God. He would purpose in his heart not to defile him. And here as an 80-something-year-old man walks in, and he is respectful to the king, but he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He knows that this, this king has no love for his Lord. He knows that this king has been mocking his God. He knows that this king has no respect for Daniel's nationality, his, his own history. Yet he goes and he speaks the truth. Not something that would be easy to do. And he talks about Nebuchadnezzar and how great he was. He, he references this, this idea, this dream. He talks about how because of Nebuchadnezzar's own pride that he acted like a beast for seven years. He goes through all of this stuff for Belshazzar. And he's, as I would suspect, looks Belshazzar in the eyes and says, you've done the same thing. I mean, you've actually taken it a step further than your grandfather. I mean, your grandfather was prideful. He, he would boast, hit his chest about how great he was, how great of a builder he was. If you go back into Daniel chapter 4, if you remember, after the warning, a year passes, and, and Nebuchadnezzar begins to walk out on his balcony and overlook the city and, and begins to brag about how great of a builder he is. And that's when the Spirit left him and he became insane. And so Daniel's saying, listen, like your father was bad, like proud, a uh, pride, like he, he was soaked with pride. But you've taken it a step further. Not only are you proud, but you're blasphemous. You've used these holy vessels and you've mocked God. Verse 24 says, Then from this, then from his presence, the hand was sent, and his writings were inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed Mine, Mine, Tekel, Parson. This is, the this is the interpretation of the matter. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Probably not the dream that he had hoped for. Definitely not the dream or the interpretation that his mom had hoped for. If you remember back, I think, in verse 10 when she marches into the, to the banquet hall, she tells him to take a deep breath, relax. You don't need to be all alarmed. Daniel can figure this out for us. And he goes and he tells them that, listen, the days of your kingdom are numbered. 
and not just the kingdom, but of you, the king. That Aramaic term, Perez, is, carries with it a divided, or a double meaning. One divided, as mentioned there, but then also Persians. What's amazing about this party that was thrown The Medes and the Persians had already united. Cyrus, who was the general, had brought the the two empires together. They had already begun to circle the walls of Babylon. Belshazzar knew that. Belshazzar knew that the Medes and the Persians were there. He knew that they had these intentions to try and... conquer Babylon. But there, he was so prideful that he wanted to throw this party. And with great reason, Babylon was considered this, this kingdom that could not be penetrated. Uh, the walls surrounding this city were complex. Many of the walls were at least 350 feet tall, 86 feet wide. The Euphrates River ran through Babylon. So there was enough water that could, could, could care for them. Along the walls, there were over 250 towers. And history tells us that they had enough rations, enough supplies to last 20 years. Like if ever there was this empire that could withstand an attack, it would have been the Babylonian Empire. And so as these Medes and Persians are beginning to surround the city, Belshazzar in his pride throws this big feast, this big party. And certainly as Daniel tells him that this kingdom will be divided between the Medes and the Persians, I'm sure he had a big gulp. Verse 29 says, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck. A proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. It's interesting that Daniel, when he entered and was told all this reward that would come his way early in the chapter, said, listen, I don't want any of this stuff. Here he doesn't reject it, object to it. He, he takes it, but the reality is Daniel knew that it was all going to end tonight. <laughs> when the Medes and the Persians took over. It made no difference who was in control. Verse 30 says, That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That night, the night that the handwriting on the wall occurred, the night that this Daniel re-enters, the night that he gives us interpretation, that night it proved true.
There are times that God uses judgment or the threat of judgment to cause repentance. And we see that in, in Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. Remember, Jonah was called to go to, to Nineveh and preach repentance. And if the people repented, God would spare Nineveh, which he did. But there are also times when God sends judgment, and it's the final judgment. I'm reminded, as I was reading this story this week, in Galatians chapter 6, Verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, but in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I so often think of that beginning section that Paul wrote in Galatians. As Belshazzar was having this party and using these vessels and mocking God to think, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he reap. That pride, that same pride that grabbed the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar, festered itself into the heart, soul, and spirit of his grandson, Belshazzar. It's that same pride as we said last week, that, that, that pride of man, the result is destruction. That, that nothing good will come out of pride. The things that we think that we're building, vocationally, relationally, whatever, when we, when we take credit for it all and we think it's all done in our own efforts, and we begin to, to take credit for all of it. And we fail to understand that it was by the grace of God. We lose sight on the sovereignty of God, on the power of God, the amazingness of God, if amazingness is a word. And we begin to take God out of the equation and all those attributes that we had earlier given to God, we begin to put on our own shoulders. There are times in our lives where we understand that the higher we climb the ladder, the bigger the fall. And sometimes, sometimes in God's great grace, he, he offers warning after warning after warning for us. Now we could get back and say, well, well Belshazzar was never given a warning. He was. 
You can go back into Isaiah and back into the book of Jeremiah. Both prophecies that talked about the destruction of Babylon. The dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had prophesied that, that the Babylonian Empire would come to an end. The, the example that his grandfather had set, all of those were warning shots. But when he crossed from just being proud to blasphemous, God said, that's enough. I will not be mocked. You've sown this, so be prepared to reap this. As the Medes and the Persians began to circulate the town, there was no way that their forces were, were large enough to penetrate. They, they didn't have the resources to, to, to climb over the wall. They didn't have the ability to crash through the bronze and enforced gates. And so in a great tactical move, they began to block off the Euphrates River about a mile and a half north. And as the king and the rest of this group concluded their party, the Medes and the Persians used the riverbank to come underneath the walls and capture the city. My hope for us this morning is twofold. One for us personally and, and relationally to God is that we, once again, like last week, look in the mirror, do a self exam. Pray to God to ask him to reveal areas in our life where, where pride may be seeping in. To find out where, where pride may already exist or maybe where our weak points are. And then we begin to work in that. To give that to God. To, to, to remind ourselves that it's all because of him. And not allow that, that pride to, to, to bring destruction. And remember that by giving God the glory, it brings restoration. And the second part of this um, as I mentioned in the introduction, and I, this is something that's weighed so heavy on my heart lately, and I know for a lot of you, but the days that we live in. And how things seem to be changing so rapidly. I, I read this study last, last night about Baltimore. You know, we saw um, a few weeks ago when these riots broke out. And um, they, they say that in Baltimore that only 15% of the boys, no, I'm sorry, only 16% of the boys, of, of boys ages 15 through 17 come from a two-parent home. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if that staggers anybody else, but when I read that, I was like, 
Wow. To think in a big city like that, that only 15 or 16% of the boys 15 through 17 were raised in a two-parent home. And, you know, and we wonder why gangs and violence is so high. When we look at some of the decisions that are being made in our country, um, from a national level to state levels to just individual levels. Like when we take the time to seriously sit down and watch the news, I don't know if you're like me, but you can almost walk away thinking there's no way that this is real. Like there's so much craziness going on. It can't be real. It, it must be made up. And sometimes we can, in our little town of Tallahassee, you know, we, we can kind of hide from some of this stuff and, and maybe we don't feel as, as, as if this is really going on. And that same verse um, from Galatians that says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh and will flesh from will will reap flesh and corruption. But here's the deal, and this is what I love about Scripture. This is what I love about our God. Is he he gives us the rough news, he gives us the, the bad stuff, he, he tells us the truth, and the truth isn't always what we like to hear. But he also gives us hope. He says, But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For a due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. Paul says, listen, don't give up. Do good. Keep doing good, even when it's hard. And that's what I love about Daniel, because Daniel, all through his life, he purposed in his heart. He stayed. He did. At 80 years old, he didn't give up. He didn't retire from his faith. He didn't say, okay, I worked long enough. I worked hard enough. Okay, it's time for you young guys to do the rest. When God called, Daniel answered. He stayed true. He did good. He reaped to the Spirit, or he, he sowed to the Spirit, he reaped from the Spirit. He sowed to God. He, he would reap benefits on earth, being promoted by Nebuchadnezzar. The very end, although it didn't mean necessarily a whole lot because it didn't last for very long, he was promoted by Belshazzar. We'll read next week of this close relationship initially that he has with Darius, who will become the ruler but he stayed true. He did not give up. And folks, what we need today are people who love God, who love Jesus. Jesus is their most important treasure, who are going to do good, who are going to stay firm, who are not going to give up. 
And as God calls them, as God leads them to do something, they're faithful to it. They do it. And they're allowed to be used by God. Folks, it's my belief that that's the only thing that will spare us from becoming just like Babylon. So my prayer today is for us individually to do a gut check, to make sure that we're not allowing pride in our life, but then second, to walk out with hope, without, walk out encouraged, walk out renewed, saying, I'm going to do right. I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to keep God in my life. I'm going to be like Daniel in purpose in my heart, not to defile him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word, your holy word. Lord, I'm thankful that you give us moments in our lives where we can see the handwriting on the wall. For some this morning, maybe you've shown them areas in their life that they need to get right. Maybe for some this morning, like it's the first time, like they've, they've never accepted you as their Savior before. And maybe the handwriting on the wall is to stop trusting in themselves and start trusting in you. Holy Spirit, I, I don't know what work you have this morning. But I pray that you work. I pray that even through my inadequacies speaking your gospel, that you use your words, not my words. You use your words, you use your scripture to prick hearts and to change lives. We love you and thank you for what you're going to do. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask if you guys would all stand and we're going to do our time of invitation and sing a song called Come As You Are. And I think it's, it's fitting. We don't need to change ourselves. We don't need to, to, to come um, wearing fancy clothes or we don't have to come knowing all the answers. Um, Jesus just wants us to come. You know, it's interesting in John chapter 8, like that same finger, the same finger that wrote on the wall for Belshazzar. It's the same finger that wrote the, the Ten Commandments on the tablets. It's the same finger, I believe, that in John chapter 8 when, when the Pharisees brought this woman caught in adultery to Jesus and they said, what should we do? John chapter 8 tells us that Jesus knelt down and he began to write things in the sand. We have no idea. Scripture doesn't tell us what he wrote. My belief is this. He began to write the sins of those accusing this young girl. And then Jesus says to them, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And they all ran. <laughs> they must have had some pretty dirty sins. Just like you and I do. And then Jesus stands up and he asks the woman where her accusers are. They weren't there. And he tenderly and lovingly said to her, go and sin no more. It's that same finger 
It's that same finger that would take all of our sins, like every one that we committed, the same, the same list that he probably wrote in the sand, we're guilty of them all, either, either in, in spirit or in truth, or either, either by doing it or, or thinking it. But so all those sins that we have, it's that same finger that pinned it to a cross. And where he ultimately died for all those sins. And he would remove all those sins from our lives. He would wipe us. He would take all that sin and make our, our, our lives white as snow for those who believe. That finger is pretty powerful. And it's done a lot for us. And so this morning, as we do this last song, we're going to sing it. And I'm going to come up and ask a few questions. But I pray that we'll be tender to what, what God's calling us to do.